0: Some of you um, know or know of or have read the writings of Dr. Richard Halverson, who is uh, currently chaplain of the U.S. Senate. Uh, In one of his writings, Dr. Halverson refers to a distinction that he makes between church work and the work of the church. Church work, he says, is the minimal amount of organization that's required in order to keep a body of Christians uh, functioning and moving along together. And he says that ought to be kept uh, to a absolute minimum. And that's the sort of thing that tends to burn people out. He's talking about serving on committees and being involved in programs and those sorts of things. Those we need to keep uh, minimal. And we need to realize that from time to time people need to drop out in order to take a, take a good breath and get some rest. Some of you... Uh, have said to me, I, I served in the last uh, Baptarian church in such and such a place, and I, uh, I was on every committee, and I was a deacon, and I did this and that and the other. Please do not call me, don't talk to me, don't even look in my direction, just leave me alone and let me rest. Well, that's all right. That's perfectly all right. There are times that we need to take a break from church work. But as Dr. Halveson points out, we should never take a break from the work of the church. The work of the church is what Paul calls in 2 Corinthians, this ministry that was committed to him. Which is the ministry of helping people to know God, to know and love God, by seeing God in the face of Christ through the scriptures. Or put another way, it's simply a matter of helping people to become believers, to entrust their lives to Jesus Christ so they can know God, be reconciled to him. And derive all of the benefits that come from knowing God and depending upon him. Now that's the work of the church. And none of us is excused from that work. That's that's an ongoing thing. And there's no reason to burn out when we talk about the work of the church. That's why Paul says, I don't faint. I don't give up. I don't quit. I don't burn out. I just keep on. This ministry sustains me. Now Paul goes on in this section that we're, that we're concerned with this morning, 2 Corinthians five eleven and following, to describe... Uh, the work of the church. Now, he has just referred, as you know in verse 10, to what he calls the judgment seat of Christ. That's a concept that's widely misunderstood. And uh, I understand from last week that Chris did a great job of explaining to you the, the, that concept of the judgment seat of Christ. You realize, of course, that Paul is talking about uh, Christians Standing before the Lord and giving an accounting. Now, I, I uh, for myself, I, I have uh, discovered that there are probably two equal and uh, both uh, e- uh, equally opposite and wrongful ways of looking at this judgment uh, seat of Christ. One is to to think of it as a very trivial thing. It's no big uh, thing. Uh, the Lord is. Uh, gracious and tender and and forgiving, and he is all that. And uh, even if we've not taken advantage of the opportunities that we have to serve, when we stand before the Lord, he will say, well, that's all right. Boys will be boys. And uh, you had a lot of uh, toys to play with and a lot of things to do, and you had a lot of fun uh, with life, and it's okay. Everything's all right. Uh, And the Lord will overlook it. It reminds me of an old... Steve Martin routine, which some of you may remember, uh, Martin says, I can show you how to make a million dollars tax-free. He says, first you make a million dollars. And then you don't pay any taxes on the million dollars. And when the IRS man comes around to collect, you say, I forgot. <laughs> now, uh, uh, a lot of people think that that's, that's, that's the sort of thing we're going to be faced with when we stand before the Lord and we will say, Oh, I forgot, and he'll say, Well, that's all right, that, that's okay. But as Paul puts it, we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body, whether good or evil. There is an accounting. We have to, uh, we have to account for what we've done with our body while we're here. There is an equal and opposite error, I think, in, in believing that this will be a terrifying thing to us. I had a friend one time describe it as a, uh, it, what he envisioned was a great big television screen that occupied half of the space in the universe. And all of his Christian friends would be seated in front of this television screen, and everything that he had ever thought or said or done would be spread all over this screen. All the evil he, in the words of the old poem, all the evil I have wrought, all the sins to others taught, all forbidden things I've sought. Everything up there on the screen, see? And uh, we will hang our head and shuffle off stage to a chorus of boos and hisses as our friends uh, see how badly we've handled things. Now those are two equally wrong concepts of the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, we need to understand that Our Lord is a Father. That's one of the most helpful concepts to me. He is like a good Father. And when I stop and think about my Father, it helps me to realize what Paul is talking about here. My Father was fairly stern and demanding, but uh, he was a very loving person. I knew he loved loved me, and I respected him a great deal, and I loved him. But I also knew that he expected me to do what I was asked to do. And before he would leave in the morning, he'd leave a little list with my mother of chores for me to do. And at the end of the day, he would come back and he'd ask me, Did you do this? Did you do this? Did you do this? And I knew if I had done it, that there would be praise. And if I hadn't done it, there would be a real problem. Now, this is the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. He is a father. Our salvation is not uh, at stake here. He's not talking about a condemning judgment but uh, the review which a father makes at the end of of our life. And Paul says, I take that thing very seriously. Knowing the fear of the Lord, he says in verse 11. Knowing how awesome it is to stand before the living God, I persuade men. That's one of the motivations that controls his life. And we'll see as we go through this passage, there are two motivations for this ministry and one message. The first motivation is what Paul calls the fear of the Lord. Now, in the Old Testament, people did not take God for granted. And when they saw God, they fell on their knees. Uh, it It was an awesome thing to stand before God. And Paul says, I realize that. I take it very seriously. That one of these days as a Christian, I will stand before my Lord, and I will give an account of what I have done with my life, whether I have taken advantage of the opportunities given to me to carry out the work of the church. You see? That's what Paul is talking about. And Paul says, Because of the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Now, uh, he goes on, We are made manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest also in your consciences. In other words, I have no other motivation. I'm not trying to... uh, I'm not playing games. I'm not hiding any false motivation. The only motive that I have is to be pleasing to God with my life. God knows that. We are open and honest with him. We are open and honest with you. But he says, we're not again commending ourselves to you. We're not bragging about our motives. As you know through the book a number of times, Paul gives an explanation for why he does what he does. And, and uh, his detractors over in Corinth were saying, well, Paul is just, uh, he's boasting, he's bragging. Paul says, no, 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 I'm not bragging, I'm not boasting. What I'm doing, he says, is giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, that you may have an answer for those who take pride in appearance and not in heart. Some people judge our actions, Paul says. They don't know our heart. They don't know why we do what we do. So Paul says, I'm going to tell you why we do what we do. I'm going to expose the underlying motives of my life so you can give an answer to people who don't understand us. And that way you'll be much more confident in the face of those that, uh, that are our critics. Four, he says in verse 13, if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are of sound mind, it is for you. Paul says that there are times that we Christians act as though we're mildly mad. We act as though we're crazy. That's what this term beside ourselves means. We act as though we're insane. We do things that people can't understand, but I want you to understand that when we do them, it's because we're walking to a a different uh, drumbeat. We want to please the Lord rather than people or ourselves. And when we explain... That's what he means by being of sound mind. When we show that there's a reason for doing what we do, that's for your sake. But in either case, he says, we're not acting out of self-interest. We're not doing what we're doing to please ourselves and to feather our own nest and to make a place for ourselves in in this world. We're not acting out of self-centered motives. We're acting on behalf of you or on behalf of God. Now, one thing we have to realize is that when we become Christians, there will be people in the world that will not understand why we do what we do, because they do not understand our motives. And they will very often think that we have gone out of our minds. We will do things that are absolutely crazy. We will act at times uh, against our best interests. We will make decisions that will seem to be harmful to us, to our health, to our well-being. But the reason we do these things, Paul says, is because we're trying to please God. Some of you met my friend Lee Yi. that was uh, here um, er, in the early part of the week. He works with Walt Hendrickson, the man who heads up this discipleship ministry in Colorado Springs. I've known Lee for years. He was, a, he was in the business school at Stanford University when I, when I worked with students there. And uh, he left uh, business, the business school there, went to Goldman Sachs. Uh, brokerage in San Francisco as a stockbroker. Had a number of contacts in Hong Kong. He's Chinese, and he had some friends in Hong Kong and other places in the Far East. The first year he was at Goldman Sachs, he made $100,000. That was his income. The second year he was with Goldman Sachs, he made $200,000. The third year, he made $7,000 because he left Goldman Sachs and decided to give himself to a ministry of discipling men. And uh, uh, he was asked by Stanford, by the business school of Stanford, to write a, an article in the in the newspaper that that the business school uh, publishes, explaining why he did what he did. And his answer was, he said, I, "I made that that decision on the same basis that any of you make that decision. I got a better offer," he said. And uh, he, now he's giving his life to discipling. Uh, men and women, and plans to go overseas, perhaps to Hong Kong and work with, with businessmen over there. Anybody looking at Lee would say, Lee, you are absolutely crazy. Who would give up a $200,000 a year income and take that kind of reduction? Well, he, he would say, well, I, I, I got a better deal. I got a better offer. I did it because I believed that God had called me to do this. Now, that's not everybody's call. That was Lee's call. It was a high and holy call for him. And your high and holy call may be to work in a different sphere. But for him, the issue was very clear. The matter was very clear. And he he acted in a way that we would think very... uh, uh, It was damaging to him and to his family's well-being. But he was doing it for God. Now, that's what Paul means when he says, if we're beside ourselves, it's for God. If we're sober... If we demonstrate some sobriety and uh, explain why we're doing what, well, it, it's for your sake. But in either case, it's not for our sake. We're not acting out of selfish in, self-interest. It's for the sake of others. It's for God and others. Because, as he explains in verse 14, the love of Christ controls us. Uh, that particular word was used in the ancient world for uh, the lanes in a in a track that confines you, that kept you running in one particular place. The love of Christ confines us, hems us in, controls us, keeps us moving in the, in the right direction. Having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. Paul says it's, it's the love of Christ that motivates us. That's his second motivation. The first is the fear of the Lord, and the second is the love of Christ. Now, the question is, what does Paul mean when he says the love of Christ controls us? Is it our love for Christ? Is it Christ-like love that controls it, controls us, or is it Christ's love for us? Well, for myself, I, I think it's the latter. It's this loving thing that Christ did for us. Which he further describes as his death on our behalf. Uh, the preposition that's used here for uh, the word "for you" or "for us" or "on your behalf" on their behalf is a preposition that has the idea of substitution. Uh, this is the um, this is the concept that theologians call the substitutionary atonement. The fact that Jesus himself took our sin, but more than that, he took us to the cross with him. He substituted for us. Now, if you know anything about the Old Testament, you know that in their worship system, they, they, they brought a lamb. Uh, each head of, the house, of, of a household would bring a lamb to the uh, temple or to the tabernacle before the temple was built. And he would lay his hands on the lamb's head and he would confess his sins. The, the, the Hebrew text says he would lean all of his weight on the lamb. Now, what's implied is more than mere transmission of sin to the animal. It's the whole person that's laid on the animal. So that when the animal goes to its death, the person in symbol goes to his death. Now, Jesus is as John the Baptist told us, is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He's the reality symbolized by the Lamb in the Old Testament. And when he died on the cross, we died with him. You see? There's much more involved here than, than the mere placing of our sins upon Christ. We went to death with him. That's what Paul is saying. When he died 1,900 years ago, we died. When he was buried, we went into the tomb with him. When he rose, we rose again. That's his point. Now, that's mystery. I can't explain that. Paul doesn't try to explain it. He elaborates on it in passages like Romans 6 and other places. But uh, uh, it's difficult to explain. We simply have to take it at face value. That in some way, we are so identified with Christ that when he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. You see? Uh, the, The spiritual says, were you there when they crucified my Lord? You bet we were. We were there, and that's what causes us to tremble. You see, we went through his death, burial, and resurrection with him. And uh, just as, uh, just as uh, uh, the law has no control over someone who has died so sin and, and guilt and our past has no control over us, it's as though we died to all of that, and we were given an entirely new life, which sets us free from the past. No guilt, no condemnation, nothing for which to be ashamed, See? Because we have died with Christ. I had a a men's conference last week. I spoke nine times in 52 hours. And I I am still spaced out. I I just feel like I got a big cotton ball up there, so you'll have to forgive me. But I remember what I wanted to say. No, I didn't. I forgot it. (laughs) Okay, I got it. There's a bit of uh, bad theology going around that uh, God looked out of heaven and he saw all these people that were doing all these terrible things, and uh, he got very angry. He said, look, look at what you're doing, messing up my universe and just in general mucking things up. And, and so God had to send someone far bigger than we are uh, in order to set things right so that he wouldn't be angry anymore. How far from the truth, you see? It's not God's anger that sent uh, Christ to the cross or sent him to the cross. It was love, see? As as John 3.16 puts it, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. And that's why Paul says this loving thing that Christ did is what motivates us. Not only the fear of Christ, the awesomeness of standing before God in the end and, and accounting for what we've done with our life and our time and our energy and our spiritual gifts, but this loving thing that Christ did in coming to die for us and, and uh, to, to set us free from all the past. Now, Paul says, because we have died with Christ and we've become a new creation in his life, it not only affects the way we look at ourselves, it, it affects the way we look at others. And that leads us into verse 18, uh, 16. Therefore, from now on, we recognize no man according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. Paul says we don't anymore evaluate men and women on the basis of what we see. Class, culture, race, political beliefs, economic uh, status, none of those things matter anymore. We don't evaluate people on on that basis. Because, he says, there was a time when we evaluated Christ on that basis and we almost made a tragic mistake. Uh, I believe on the basis of his passage that Paul must have known the Lord. He must have, in the years of, of his incarnation, he must have heard him speak. He was aware of his, of his ministry in Jerusalem. Paul lived in Jerusalem. He was a member of the Jewish hierarchy, the Sanhedrin. So that undoubtedly he heard, he heard Jesus preach. He knew him in the flesh. And he devaluated him. You know, he's just a crazy street preacher. He does not have the credentials to do what he's doing. Who is this fellow who came out of the, the out of Galilee? This Hick with you know, this Hasey who who comes to Jerusalem and has the audacity to stand in the in the temple courts and preach to the people as though he, he is someone. Who is this? And he discounted it. But um, He was on his way up to Damascus, as you know, with letters giving him authority to put Christians in in jail. He hated Christians. He hated Christ. And he saw the risen Lord. And he realized that the man he had seen preaching in the streets of Jerusalem was nothing more or less than God Almighty. And his whole perspective on who Christ was changed. And Paul says, that has affected the way I think about everyone. I don't evaluate people anymore by externals, by the way they look, whether they're short or tall or well-built or, or frail, or whether they're very masculine or whether whether they're not, or whatever. We don't evaluate people that way anymore, he says. We don't look at them in terms of externals. We have a new way of looking at them, and he describes what that is in the verses that follow. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creation, the old things have passed away; behold, new things have come. In other words, he he divides the human race into two classes: there are those that are in Christ, and those that are outside. And uh, he sees everyone as either in Christ and thus a new creation, or potentially in Christ and potentially a new creation. That's the way he looks at the uh, clerks that check him out of the grocery store. Or the the person that works on your automobile that puts gas in your car, uh, the professor that teaches your class, the students in your class, the administrators that you work with in the in the school system, the, the, the people that uh, other people that do hateful and cruel things to you and they treat you unjustly—you see them as either in Christ and new creations and capable of change, or you see them as out of outside in the coal, but but potentially in Christ, brought in from the cold into the household of God and a new creation with the potential of living out the life of God. See, that makes you hopeful about people, makes you positive, makes you more tolerant of people. You become bullish on people. You you, you believe that they've got uh, something going for them, that they can make progress, that they can change. Because Christ, when Christ comes in, he, uh, he makes new creatures, new creations out of them. And uh, so, Paul goes on in verse 18 to say, These things are all from God. He's the one who does it. He's the change agent uh, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Paul said, I can't change anyone. It's God who changes people. All I can do is announce the potential that's there. I have what he calls a ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, he says, and this is his conclusion, therefore we're ambassadors for Christ. As though God were entreating through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. You see, the problem that separated man from God is is that of sin. Uh, our, our, our sinful lives and the fact that we are by nature sinful beings created a, an infinite separation between us and God. And Paul says what we have to realize is that it's, it's characteristic of all of us. We're all sinful beings. And not only do we do sinful things, we are by nature sinful the, the world's not divided into the good guys and the bad guys. It's not that the Marxists are, are evil and the capitalists are good. It's not that one state is evil and another is good. It's that, that evil exists in all of us, in every one of us. Uh, when, when Alexander Solzhenitsyn was in the gulag, he met a young Jewish doctor, Christian, uh, uh, who, by the name of Boris Cornfield and solzhenitsyn 's soul was uh, uh, was just uh, was bitter because of the injustice that he had experienced and he ran into this uh, this young physician who was in prison for no other reason than than his race. he was a jew, and uh, this man had no uh, had no bitterness no resentment and Solzhenitsyn asked him how how he could handle the injustice that he was experiencing. Cornfield said, no punishment goes undeserved. The point that he was making is that he, had, even though it was unjust for him to be in prison, simply because he was a Jew, he had done enough things uh, throughout his life to justify his being in prison. And uh, Solzhenitsyn said, that's the thing that sparked, uh, a, a light went off in his heart. And he began to, to think about that. And one day, as he, as he sta- stated it, he was lying on his, uh, the rotting straw. In his cell. And he realized that the line between good and evil, as he put it, does not run between states and nations. It runs through the heart of every man. And that's when he began to hunger for God. Now, that's what Paul says. That's the problem that separates us from one from one another and from God it's sin and it's not again just the sins that we do but it's the it's the terrible awful evil and wickedness that's in every heart no one is can escape it none of us and every once in a while we do something that demonstrates how wicked we really are we do something that is blatantly evil just for the sake of doing evil uh, Augustine in his confessions tells us about a time when he was a child a time that marked him for life and convinced him that he was basically an evil man and uh, a lot of Augustine's critics reading that portion of the confessions poke fun at him because it seems that what he's describing is just a mere piccadillo it's just a very small thing but Augustine said this is what convinced me that I am basically an evil person uh, he and a, a, a number of his friends rated a a neighbor's fruit orchard. He had a fruit orchard right next to his house. He had all the fruit that he could want. But they raided this orchard and they threw the fruit on the ground and trampled it into the ground for no other reason than just to, just wanton destruction. Just to do evil. And Augustine said that's when he began to realize the depths of, of wickedness in his own heart. Now that's our problem. And it's universal. The Bible says all have sinned. And fallen short of, of the glory of God. But you see what what happens is that the Lord takes our sin and He takes us. And He places all of that on Christ. That's why Paul puts it the way he does. He made him to be no sin. He made him who had no sin or who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He made this one who never knew sin, who never knew guilt, who was t- utterly untainted by sin, to, to become a sinful man. Uh, he, he embodied all of our sin. That's what, that's what Paul means when he says, he was made sin for us. And this, the, what we call the cry of dereliction when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, that was not weakness. Uh, he knew precisely why he was being forsaken. He was quoting the first few verses of chapter of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the very next verse says, you're too holy to look upon sin. You see, what happened is that Jesus began to experience the depth and the awfulness of our sin. And the Father had to withdraw from him. For the first time in his life, he experienced this the, the disfavor of the Father, because he had become sin. Luke says that when he was in the garden praying, he began to feel, uh, the translations put it, very heavy. Uh, it's the Greek word, ah, demos. The demos is the word from which we get the word domicile. It means house or home. He began to be away from home. He began to feel homesick. That's the point. Because the Father, you see, withdrew from him because he became sin. So we could become righteous. What a, what a deal we get, you see. He became sin so that we become righteous. And so God does not have anything against us any longer. You see what Paul is saying? He's not saying that God needs to be reconciled to us. God's already reconciled. God's not angry at you. He's not stalking around heaven, stamping his feet because, because you and I sin. That's not the problem that separates us. He has nothing against us any longer. Christ has paid for our sins. The thing that separates us is not our sins. It's simply that we won't accept the remedy that, that Jesus offers. That's what separates us from God. I'm not a universalist. I don't believe that everyone belongs to God. But I do believe that the Scripture teaches that Christ's atonement was for the whole world so that Christian and non-Christian no longer have to, have to face God's wrath simply because of their sins. That's all been dealt with in the cross. It's not our sins that keep us away from God. They've been paid for. God has nothing against And that's why Paul says, I beg you. I plead with you. Be reconciled to God. God's not mad. He hasn't turned his back on you. He's standing there longing for your worship and your love and your response to him. He's seeking, as Jesus told the woman at the well, he's seeking people to worship him. He's not mad at you. The problem, you see, is that we've turned our back on Him. And Paul says, our message, which is one, is be reconciled to God. Turn around and come back to God. He loves you. He longs for you. He wants you. I uh, had a a high school friend when I was down in California. His name was Jay Bathurst. I didn't work with high school kids uh, at that particular time, but... Uh I I really tried to befriend Jay because he had a he had a just an awful childhood. When he was about four or five years old his father died. Shortly afterward, uh his mother married again and then she died of a brain tumor, and he was left with a father in law and a or a stepfather and a stepmother, uh not related to either one of them and and he had a very difficult time. They didn't understand Jay too well, I think, and he had his own set of problems, but in any case, he grew up, grew up feeling uh, that no one really cared about him. And he used to hang around the church all the time, the church building, and uh, he used to get up into the attic above my office. There was a crawl space up there, and he, he, would, he would crawl up and down the space and rap on the ceiling and, and play practical jokes on this and whatnot. Well, One day I walked into my office, and uh, there was all this trash all over my desk, Uh, asbestos and and pieces of ceiling and I looked up and there was this enormous hole like this in my ceiling and I realized what had happened Jay had been fooling around up in the attic and he fell through the ceiling and so my first thought was uh, boy I've got to run that kid down and uh, we're going to have a talk about this but I began to think about it a little bit and uh, this is one way that we here uh, on the staff can demonstrate love for Jay And so I rounded up the maintenance man and a couple of us got together and we fixed the ceiling and and plastered it so that you could hardly tell that the hole had existed and cleaned everything up and then I I went out to try to find Jay and tell him that everything was all right And he disappeared. Uh, I I went over to his house to talk to him and uh, saw him running out the back door through the the river and uh, uh, I couldn't find him at school. He was dodging me and but after about a week or so, I, he pulled up in his car into the parking lot, and I saw him out of my window, and he was trying to avoid me. He was going around the building in another direction, and I cut him off at the pass, and we met right at the corner of the building, and I said, I said, hey, Jay, I've been looking for you. And uh, he said, yeah, I'll bet you you have. And I said, come here, I want to show you something. he said, yeah, yeah, I know you do. And we went into my office, and he wouldn't look up. He looked down, you know. I said, look, look up, look up. And he looked up, and he said, well, what happened? And I said, we fixed the ceiling. And he said, how much do I owe you? And I said, nothing, nothing. We just want you to know we love you. Now, that's exactly what God has done for us. You know, we fell through his ceiling, so to speak. We dishonored his name and we, we tried to ruin his universe and, and everything else that he's, he's, uh, he's uh, created and uh, certainly he has the right to be angry but he isn't, you see he, he fixed the ceiling and he picked up the tab he paid the bill and now he wants us to know that he wants us to be reconciled to him you see that's our message, we don't have to go out and tell people they're sinful they know it my goodness, we all know it. We don't have to, to be harsh and rude, and we don't have to push people. Paul does he, he's, he, very careful in his choice of words. We beg you, he says, we plead with you. And he describes himself as an ambassador. The ambassador doesn't formulate uh, national policy, he just denunciates it. And he's there sensitive to the culture in which he represents his uh, nation, and he uh, he's tactful, and he's he's... Careful in the way he, he speaks to people in that environment. Paul says, that's the way we're to be. We're ambassadors for Christ. We're sent out to, to, to beg, to plead with people, to come back to God, to realize that he loves them, that he yearns for them, that his heart longs for them. And we get the privilege of, of announcing that fact. That's the ministry of reconciliation. The motivation is twofold. The fear of the Lord and this loving thing that Christ did for us. And the message is one. We are agents of reconciliation. Uh, we, are, we announce. God is the agent of reconciliation. We announce that reconciliation. Now if you're here this morning and you have never realized that God is already reconciled to you. You just need to be reconciled to him. All you need to do is come to him. As Jesus put it. Come unto me. All you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. That's what it means to become a Christian. You come to Christ and accept what he has to offer. And those of us that have been reconciled to God, we need to, to realize that our assignment is to announce that reconciliation to the world. Let's pray. Forgive us, Lord, for our guilty silence, for our unwillingness, for several reasons, to be forthright about this message. Deliver us from the fear that we'll be misunderstood or rejected or that people will think we, uh, we're we mad because of our orientation on life. Help us, Lord, to put all those things be, behind and uh, to lay hold of your strength, to announce to our friends that... Uh, that you have made reconciliation. Help us to befriend those that need to hear that message and uh, to be tolerant of, of all types of people and, and not to be put off by their sin or to reject them for reasons of the, of the flesh on some external basis, but help us to see that the whole world consists consists of those that have been reconciled and those who need to hear that message of reconciliation. Help us, Lord, to see that this is our work. This is the work of the church. And that none of us is excused. And and that all of us are empowered for this purpose. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name. Amen.